So please welcome back to the Lindrop Hockey Podcast. We are here at episode 31 with co-host, father and son duo, Andrew and Jim Lindrop. Dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing great this week, Andrew. Episode 31, and I am excited for this guest. And you actually got this guest. And, yeah. and I was like, wow, Andrew, this is going to be great. So let's get right into it because we got a full show. Yeah, absolutely. So our next guest, we're going to welcome Jim Thompson. So Jim Thompson began playing Juniors in 1982 with the Toronto Marlboros and did so until 1985. During that time, he was drafted during the 1984 NHL draft in the ninth round by the Washington Capitals. After juniors, he began his professional career in the AHL with the Binghamton Whalers, playing until the 89-88 or 88-89 season. During the time, he also made his first handful of NHL appearances with the Washington Capitals during the 86-87 season. He continued to play professionally between the AHL and NHL until 1994, most notably suiting up for clubs such as the Hartford Whalers, New Jersey Devils, LA Kings, Ottawa Senators, and the Anaheim Mighty Ducks. I know it's a bit of a mouthful, but without further ado, please welcome our special guest today, Jim Thompson. All right. How are you guys doing? Good, doing, man. Doing, How are you? Doing great, I'm Jim. wonderful. And like really we just well. talked, we just talked offline. It's a thrill for me because, uh, you know, you're only a few years older than me, so... Uh, I was. I remember you playing specifically in LA, and uh, we've got so much to ask of you. So let's take it back to uh, give our listeners a little background. So, um, you know, blue collar kid, you weren't a rich kid, so that you weren't having, uh, you know, maybe the best equipment, and you weren't going to the uh, uh, special skating schools and shooting camps and things like that. Um, you know, you were out there on frozen ponds and trying to do pickup games, I'm going to assume. Yes. Yes, Jim. Uh, it's a great question because when I grew up in a trailer park outside of Edmonton, Alberta, and if people out there have seen the trailer park boys show, it's not much different than that. You know, it's not a lot of money and you make your own fun. We didn't have hockey arenas, so we did have frozen ponds, but my first time skating um I was six years old and one of my buddies had skates and his dad had skates so I had no skates and he said do you want to go skating on the pond and at that point I you know had no idea or what have you so I wore these men's skates which were much too large for me but what I do remember about it is the minute I got on the ice I could skate and I teach hockey now so for any teacher out there would understand when you put a six-year-old on the ice it's going to take you know, multiple lessons for him to find his edges, balance and all this stuff. So I could skate. I couldn't stop. But I remember getting on there and my buddy was like, oh, you've skated before. I said, I've never skated in my life. So it was natural. You know, my father was a hockey player, um, was uh, back in the day, was going to play in the original six for the Boston Bruins. And at 17, he was uh, he went to World World War Two for four years. So there was some DNA in the blood there with hockey and um but yeah my first time skating on a pond and yes no money no equipment and and then uh, went from there so when at what age did you think hey I'm pretty good at this game of hockey and you know I mean Canada and for us U.S. people I mean you know we're assuming that everybody plays hockey so at what point did you go hey I'm pretty good at this maybe I could do this for a living well, I think I think the first seed planted with me was after that winter of um, skating on the ponds. The following winter, 
there was tryouts for the local team, which played on an outdoor rink about 20 minutes away. And my buddy again said, come and try out. Well, at that point, we had a store here called Wolkel. And I was lucky enough to get a cheap pair of skates that fit me. But I had no equipment or nothing like that. So we go to this tryout on an outdoor rink. I'm in mitts, a jacket. I got a hockey stick that's, you know, banded together. And I got no equipment. I'm in my jeans. So one of the drills, everybody else on the ice is in equipment for this trout. So anyways, one of the drills the coach said is you're going to start from the end zone, like at the, the, the end. You're going to skate to the blue line, go down on two knees, up, red line down on two knees, up, blue line down on two knees, up, and then skate to the other end. Well, I was determined to make this hockey team. So this will answer your question about my passion and love. So I got no shin pads on and I'm down and up, down and up, down and up. He says, go again. I'm down and up, down and up. And then he comes up to me and says, are you wearing shin pads? And I said, no, I don't own equipment. So he didn't say anything to me. He goes, I don't want you to do this drill anymore. So after that, the I made the hockey team. And the fortunately for me, the people banded together to get me uh, some equipment and all that sort of thing because we couldn't afford it. And, you know, that started at six years old, seven years old. So I was in love with it. I'm, I'm still in love with hockey. I call myself a hockey geek. And I'm still, you know, at 55, I was on the ice early this morning and, uh, you know, continue to work out and stay in shape and uh, love the game. I want to uh, bring up this and then Andrew will have some questions here. Let me just ask this, Andrew, real quick. So you were tearing it up in, in, in midgets, you know, I mean, you yeah. look up your stats and what was it like to go from that transition of playing with kids to finally, um, you know, playing for Toronto? Uh, in the OHL, I mean, all of a sudden you're going to go up against men. Yeah. And first of all, what was it like to get signed to the uh, OHL, and what was it? What was the transition you had to do? Because now you're playing with the bigger boys. Well, just a little history there. I was 14, and I had scored, you know, lots of goals. I think close to 70 goals in midget, and I got called up to the junior B team. So I had actually had some experience with 20-year-olds before I went to Toronto because I finished the year with the junior B team in Devon, Alberta. And that transition was major because that's when this whole career, I, 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 I hated fighting, hate's a strong word, but I hated it. But it happened in when I was 14. I basically knocked out a 20-year-old who was supposedly a tough guy by fluke. And next thing you know, I was, you know, uh, pigeonholed, if you will, as this guy that can fight, not led into Toronto and that. But to answer your question, the, the transition was, I just remember being out on the ice as a kid with guys with beards that were three times my <laughs> size. And that's the biggest thing I'll ever, I'll never always remember. We, I remember playing in, in our first game against Vegerville that, you know, I'm looking and it's like I'm out there with men and I'm going, I'm way over my head. But you know what's funny? I, I scored two goals that game. My very first junior B game, I scored two goals. And I'm thinking, wow, I can do this. So going into Toronto quickly, that was a whole nother animal playing in Maple Leaf Gardens and, you know, Harold Ballard, the late Harold Ballard being our owner. And uh, like, because in Edmonton, we had a hockey night in Canada. So we'd either see the Toronto Maple Leafs or Montreal Canadiens. So now I'm living that life. I ended up moving to Markham, Ontario with my uncle and aunt to live there for three years during my hockey career, but, or my junior career, sorry. So that was, was an amazing, amazing time. Wow. 
So I always kind of heard, especially back in those early 80 days and everything, I mean, all the leagues, AHL, UCHL, but I also heard the OHL, those junior leagues were really, really tough. What was it like playing in that league back in the day? I mean, was it as tough as everybody says it was? Well, I'm laughing because, you know, for every question, there's a great story. So we're playing in the exhibition season against the Oshawa Generals, and they had this big, tough uh, winger who runs into our goalie. So I'm there, you know, a kid from Alberta, you know, I'm playing with all the Eastern boys and I end up on the ice and going after this guy who hit our goalie because our bench went wild. So I thought, you know what? I had these protective instincts in me. I had three older, four older brothers. And um, so I just took it upon myself and I went out and I did a pretty good job on this guy. So I had a couple more fights during the preseason and all that. So we're on a bus trip and they had this OHL yearbook, every player's picture with the story. So I'll never forget. I was sitting with my teammate, John Delco, and we're, we're so excited to see our pictures in the book <laughs> and it comes up to Jim Thompson. And this is exactly what it says. Alberta raised winger has established himself as the best fighter on the team. <laughs> no pressure. And I'm thinking, what? So then my buddy looks at me and goes, oh my goodness. So to answer your question, Andrew, what do you think every tough guy on each team was reading? Okay, there's the Alberta boy. So I had to back that statement up and, you know, I wasn't a big fighter in the OHL, but I had my fair share of fights and survived it. But yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I, like I always say this, I didn't ask for the role of fighting because I don't believe in it. I don't believe in violence. It was part of my life, part of the game, but uh, it was tough to Andrew. It was tough hockey, especially when we went to the American hockey league, every, every fourth line or in the NHL, we're all fighters. So the fourth lines we get out and we'd have two or three fights and get that out of the way. And we go back to hockey. And obviously that would kind of make you trying to play your game, you know, just trying to score and play hockey a bit difficult, right? If everybody's out there trying to challenge you and get their piece of you. The challenging part was this. I couldn't sleep. This is how I turned into, you know, drinking more than I was taking drugs to kill the anxiety because again, fighting wasn't my thing. And when I became this player, there was no hockey. There was no excitement to get my equipment on and go out there and skate in front of 20,000 people. That was great for Gretzky and, you know, the, the, the players who never had to do that. But for me, if I get knocked out, if I get my ass kicked in front of, you know, especially in LA, I'm there to protect Gretzky. If I took a beating, you know what they're going to do? Back to the minors, they'll find somebody else. Right. So hockey ended for me basically after my junior career as much as like back when you just played and scored and were with your buddies that I would even say that ended a little bit midget because wow. now all of a sudden, you know, that every time you go to practice, cause there's lots of fights in practice too, guys with your own teammates, oh, right. every time you're putting your equipment on, there's a chance you may be in a bare knuckle fight. Yeah. You know, and I had 124 pro fights they've documented, you know, in pro hockey some people have never had a bare knuckle fight in their life. And I'm telling you this, it's, it's taxing on the insides of a man's body. If, if that's not your gig. Yeah. And so I was curious, Jim, so you were, like I mentioned in, in the intro, you were drafted in the ninth round. And I believe now that there's only up to seven rounds. I don't know if they do any more behind the scenes. I've heard some things, but what was it like 
first of all, what was your draft story, you know, you finding out and everything? And then kind of the second question was, you know, with so many rounds of being drafted, I know there's a lot less teams in the league back then compared to now. Was it a disadvantage as a, you know, to your mental mindset of like, oh, I'm drafting the ninth round, most ninth rounders don't make it? Or was it a didn't matter, you could grind it hard enough to make it? Good question. So my agent, and I'm sure most agents do this, said you're, you're eight now in the, in the North American skaters, you're rated to third to fifth round. That's without the Europeans. Okay. So big mistake on my family's part. We had a draft party at my mom's trailer. So the trailer was full with family and friends and the draft started at 12 noon. And you know, the football boards where you take squares and all that. So they had this thing going on where they're buying squares and the person who picked the right team would win the money. So it's all exciting. One o'clock comes, two o'clock comes, three o'clock comes. And back then it was on TSN but it was only on till three and then it shut down and then, right. So you didn't know what was going on because obviously social media and all that was different. So around six o'clock, everybody's leaving. We've had dinner. I'm sitting there and I, you know, I'm just like, wow, this is, this is not. So I do remember this at nine 15 at night, the phone rang. And back then it was the rotary phone. Right? <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't remember this, Andrew. Ring. <laughs> no. I'm not, at this point, I'm just thinking, cause everybody kept phoning. Did you get drafted? So I'm like, Oh my gosh, who is it now? Said, Hello, Jim Thompson. I said, yes. Congratulations. This is Jack button from the Washington capitals. We just drafted you in the ninth round. And I'm going to tell you, Andrew, my dream had come true. Like to hear that phone call, it didn't matter if I was drafted in the hundredth round, just to hear a man of Jack Button, the late Jack Buttons, you know, he this was an icon in the NHL and just, I'll never forget that call. And I was so happy. So that was my first step up the mountain to achieve your real dream. Wow. And so I noticed after, we're going through the juniors now. After your junior year had included, I noticed in your stats that you had that same season, you had played a four-game stint in, in the uh, AHL, which was your first pro games. Um, so how did that all go down? Did they Was it just the end of the OHL season, and then they said there was a couple games left and pulled you out? And was the transition a lot different, obviously, from the OHL? Well, well you've done your homework here. So, yeah, we lost out in the OHL. We lost out in the second round of the playoffs. And what they would do is the, the prospects that they had drafted, Binghamton was shared by Hartford and Washington. So half Washington players would go there, half Hartford. So at the end of the play, our playoffs, they had called me up to Binghamton. My very first game, the Whalers, Binghamton Whalers, were playing St. Catherine Saints, which was Toronto Maple Leafs farm team in St. Catharines, Ontario, which was not far from where I lived in Markham. So I will never forget when they said, you're going to go up and play, you know, American Hockey League. Wow. Driving with my uncle to St. Catharines. And I do remember one thing. My name is T-H-O-M-S-O-N. Ironically, my dad's name was the way my name is spelled. My mother's name, she was from England, had a P in Thompson. They were both Thompson. But I remember walking in and all the jerseys were hanging up in the dressing room and my name had a P in it. <laughs> like, I was just like, oh, my first pro game, how could this be, right? So, you know, that's just a disappointment 
even though you're excited. But anyway, I'll never forget going in there. And, and again, back to your question about the 80s, St. Catharines had a really tough team. So here I am, a skinny little kid, right? I'm thinking, wow, I'm like, this is it. You know, this is one step from the next league, which was the NHL. So, yeah, that was a surreal moment I'll never forget. And so those four games, I finished four games. I never played in the playoffs. I stayed up for the playoffs and then came back to Edmonton in the summer and trained and went back to my first training camp. Awesome. So you you only spend maybe a year, season and a half before you get your first call up in the NHL with Washington. And um, I'll, I'll do the spoiler, but I'll, I'll leave the story to you. So, you know, most guys, Andrew, get called up and, you know, it's, you know, very limited time. And, you know, he has to shadow Mario Lemieux, right, Jim? That's correct. Um, what happened was we were playing in Hershey against Philly's farm team. And they had a 50 goal scorer. His name was Ross Fitzpatrick. So unbeknownst to me, Larry Plo, my coach in Binghamton said, I want you to cover Fitzpatrick. We played him two games over the weekend and no fighting. They had tough guys, Craig Berube, Mike Struthers, Jeff Chicken, all these guys who I'd normally fight, Tony Horacek. And, and he said, no fighting. They've sent guys out after you. Don't fight. I need you to cover him and not let him score. That's your job. Just stay with them. So over the weekend, he had a couple assists on the power play, never got a goal. And I did a really good job. So after what happens is when you're in the minors, when all the brass is there, you know, somebody's getting called up. If they come to the game. And so when you're walking out to the bus, there they were, David Poyle, Terry Murray, assistant coach, the late Brian Murray was the head coach, Warren Stralo, the goalie coach. So you always hoped that you're going to be the one getting called over or otherwise to just say, you know, Hey, good game, Jim, what have you. Right. Cause they're kind of separated. Not that they're being snobs. It just was business. So this night I walked out and I remember a couple guys were in front of me and they're like, good game, Mike. And that, and it's like, Jim, and I, I got the way from David Poyle. So he calls me over, he said, really good weekend. He said, uh, we're going to call you up to play against Pittsburgh tomorrow night in Washington. And they're very cut and dry, right? <laughs> so I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I drive back to Washington from Hershey with the late Warren Stralo, the goalie coach, and go to the pregame skate in the morning. So I'm thinking I'm going there, and I'm going to fight Jay Caulfield or Mark Kachowski, whatever. They know they're, I'm going there to you know give them some toughness and what have you. So in the morning skate, um, you know, all the guys – Great players, Mike Gartner, Rod Langway, Scott Stevens, all these guys, Dave Christian on uh, Washington, who I had been at training camp with. So they're all welcoming me and all that. So after practice, I get called in the coach's room. And Brian Murray said, are you nervous? And I said, well, a little bit, but I think, you know, this is what I've worked for and I'm ready to go. He goes, well, he goes, you might be a little bit nervous now. He said, you did such a good job on Ross Fitzpatrick. He says, we're going to have you do the same thing on Mario tonight. And that's when I got hit over the head with a hammer going, what? <laughs> like, it was almost like I thought it was a joke. So speed the story up. We go out. Mario's really pissed off because he knows they <laughs> called this tough guy up. And this is one of the reasons Mario retired apart from his cancer was he got tired of guys like me hook and hacking. And, and you know, he was a big man. So. You know, I, I covered him from just covered him for just under two periods. I messed up. I was doing a great job. 
And Brian made it like, I don't care if you get a breakaway, you stay with them, which means just your job is just to shadow them. Well, late in the second period, we get a three-on-one, Kevin Hatcher, Kelly Miller, and I'm the high guy. And I'm thinking three-on-one, here we go. So Kevin Hatcher goes to pass it back to me and the puck goes over my stick. Got, you know, how, how that happens, I don't know. To Mario lifting a stick and swinging back on a breakaway. Didn't score. I went back to the bench and I got reamed by Brian and sat on the bench the rest of the game and thought this was, you know, my career. And anyways, ended up staying up for 10, nine more games and uh, actually got hurt on Hockey Night in Canada. I got in a fight and severed my uh, tendon in my hand. But what a, what a night that was. I, I got to tell you the story quickly. So later on um, at the Ottawa Senator alumni box, my wife and I are there watching her play in Pittsburgh. And Mario was two boxes over. And I said to her, I got to go down and say something to him. So I go down to his box and he, it was, he said, he'll see me. And I go, Hey, Mario, how you doing? Former player, Jim Thompson. He's like, how you doing? I said, you won't remember me, but you might remember this game. So I explained the game quickly to him. He remembered it because he goes, I remember being really pissed off at Brian Murray. I said, well, what you didn't know, Mario, I said, that was my very first NHL game. And he hits his buddy, goes, holy F. He said, could you imagine your first game happened to cover me? Like yeah, it was a compliment sure. to me, right? Saying, wow, that's now there's a story. So that made me feel really good. So, yeah, that was my first game, Jim. Two, awesome. two things to follow up on that. Um, um, number one, um, and we don't know this just by talking to some other players. Some of the other players we talk to talk about playing against, a, you know, someone that's just a, a Hall of Famer. And they're, they're so strong, meaning, you know, uh, we had um, uh, McKenzie played in the 2000s, say he couldn't move, uh, you know, Matt's uh, Naslin out of the net. How strong was Lemieux? He, what you got to remember is on skates, he's roughly six, 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 seven. He was 220 pounds. I don't know. So just take that mountain of a man who, you know, was just so smooth around the ice. Like I, I had to give it everything just to stay in front of him or, you know, I remember bumping into him and I was just like, he had jolt me. Right now, obviously he's not very happy, but he was, he, he talked to any player played against him. He was strong. And wow. that's why he was so great is because his strength and size and reach was a big advantage for him. And he could hold guys off and, you know, just do things that a six foot or six, two guy, you know, when you take him and Gretzky, Gretzky's a totally different dynamic than Mario was. Mario did a lot of it through strength and reach where Gretzky was all finesse. Right. So yeah, he was strong. He was strong and he was, he was physical. Like he would, he would let you know it too. Right. Yeah. So it's also strange that, you know, you're, you, you were known as being an enforcer, but yet what got you to that first NHL game was being a checker. Yeah. Big, big yeah. difference. Big difference. You know, like I told you, I thought I was going up there to scrap. Right. And you know, one, one, when they, how this all turned out my first year in the American hockey league, I had 195 penalty minutes. I think, I don't know how many majors a lot. You know, as a rookie, that was, I was showing that I wasn't afraid and I'd fight. And so, you know, that year at the exit meetings, basically they told me, if you want to play in Washington, you're going to have to fight more. Okay. The next year I had 41 fights in 57 games, 360 minutes. Right. And, um, 
you know, then I had hand surgery. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I but, bet. you know, and that's, that's, I do anything to live my dream out. So it was like, tell me what you need me to do. And I think this goes for a lot of guys like me that were goal scorers when they were younger. And, you know, the most of them will tell you, you know, they were normally the best player in their community. And, you know, they had some sandpaper to them and all of a sudden they're, they're protecting their teammates or giving their team some momentum. That's how it all is. You know, I mean, there's there's guys like Bob Probert, and Tony Twist, and these guys who are just natural beasts that are gonna you know take a chunk out of you. But there was a lot of guys like myself that that helped us make it. And so after your first handful of NHL games in for the next like I think three seasons, you were grinding it out in the AHL. So during those three years, just kind of a fun question was. There any good stories of just a rivalry with another team that you had, or maybe even a player, but any crazy stories with another team on the ice? Well, you know, it's funny. I had one of my students pull up this video and um, we, we, you know, back then we had a little, you're fighting all the time and there was rivalries, a guy that played in Buffalo, Rob Ray, him and I would fight all the time and he was a tough dude and, um, but there was a guy in Baltimore, his Dave, name was Dave Moylan. And what happened was I came back from my surgery on my hand. So they had me wear these special gloves and Washington said, no fighting, right? Like you need to get this healthy. So I was able to hold my stick, you know, I'm gone through the rehab and all that. Well, this guy, he even knew about my injury. He knew about my surgery. Like I sat there and said, I can't fight right now. And I don't care, you know, you chicken shit Thompson. So as your DNA and your blood start boiling, you get to the point where you're seeing red. So I dropped the, I dropped my one glove. Right. <laughs> and we go at it, but I am not like, I'm this, this was not enough for me. Right. And he's still yapping and he's under my skin. And I go back after the five minute major and, and I'll never forget the coach just screaming. Like, what are you doing? So we come out of the box, or sorry, after we got back on the ice, cross check right across my back. He was a defenseman in front of the net. I get up, and there he is, like, let's go again. So before you can even think, it's like, oh yeah. So we go again. Again, wasn't wasn't you know the slug out, you know, go for it. It was just more grappling, and I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Right? Like, if we're gonna fight, let's fight. So, anyways, um, <laughs> I get shit in the crap at the bench again and sure enough you know if you watch youtube you can see this the the third fight you know i'm i'm freaking swinging for the fences right and i knock <laughs> off his helmet and what happens is we fall and i end up biting him because i was so and i'm not proud of that i'm not telling you this you asked the question andrew and i <laughs> i paid the price for suspension but I was just like, this guy put me in such a rage because he did not take into consideration. I just missed eight months with the hand surgery. Yeah. He just didn't care. So I'm like, you don't care. I don't care. So I ended up biting. Him. So the funny part about that, the French defenseman on our team, he's Baudouin, I get kicked out of the game and our, our coach at the time, Doug Jarvis, he's like, why are they kicking him out? Because he was, he was trying to say biting but he, it sounded like fighting because he had a French accent. So Doug Jarvis says, I know he got fighting, but why match penalty and be kicked out? <laughs> so that was a whole nother funny story. But yeah. So when you say about a rivalry, I can't think of anything more than that because that was a time where I'm just like, you know, I, I, uh, 
you know, I crossed the line. Definitely. I'm not proud of that. So that was a rivalry for sure. I've, I've got to hit uh, just because I've, I've always wanted to ask this question. You go to LA. So we're kind of jumping around here in your NHL career. You're in LA. Of course you're playing with so many great players. I mean, not just Gretzky, but even, you know, McSorley. I mean, he's a great player, great enforcer, but a great player. So many great players. Um, what was it like playing in LA? And I guess it's not so much your teammates, but I mean, you had like, at that time, you went to the Stanley cup finals, that city was on fire. You have like actor, they had actors, actresses, I mean, everybody wanted to meet these players. I mean, they were the hottest ticket in town. What yeah. was the atmosphere like, Jim? Well, in my office here, I got pictures, Sylvester Stallone, Kurt Russell, President Reagan, Nancy Reagan. Like I got a lot of the, what you talk about, Jim, they would all come into the dressing room after. And funny story was, you know, I'm waiting to see, we played Boston Bruins and I'm waiting to see my first uh, Hollywood star. So I'll never forget it. I'm, I'm undoing my skates and I sat beside Jay Miller, another enforcer. Oh yeah. And so we'd have women in the room and you know, you never knew who was going to be there. So I'm untying my skates and I see these black Ugg boots, which prominently are worn by women and tight skin, tight jeans. And then I hear this voice saying, Hey Jay, good game. <laughs> and I look up and it's Sylvester Stallone <laughs> what is going on here. Right. And, and he was dressed real, like real. And then when I learned him turtleneck, nice leather jacket, I'm like, Oh my gosh, Rocky's wearing Uggs. But anyway, yes. um, <laughs> it was, your dad will remember this. Uh, Kurt Russell, who I'm a big fan of too, was standing over there. They were there promoting their movie Tango and Cash. Yeah. Um, you remember that movie. So that was my first experience. And then I can tell you, you know, the, the dress, like it was, you never knew who you were going to meet. So tons of movie stars, LA, Gretzky, every game sold out and we were the ticket. Um, but a great story was this, um, uh, John Cusack. So we're standing, sitting there and, um, you know, it's like, they wanted to be us, right. Yeah. They, wanted, they, they admired us. We admired them. And then guns and roses was in the room. And everybody wanted to be them, right? So it, it was just the, just the way Cusack said it, right? He was like, we all want to be those guys, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's who we want to be. So that was that was pretty funny. But yeah, it was it was um, surreal to see, you know, Tom Hanks and Jim John Candy and all these different people, Jim Belushi. Just you never knew who you're going to meet. So we can't go by, and, and, and I'm sure you talk about it a lot, and I'm sure you want to talk about it, uh, but for our listeners, and maybe I can ask a question or two that you might not have answered yet, but playing with the great one, um, we know he's, you know, uh, the great one, and we, we know, we've heard stories that he's uh, a great uh, teammate, and he's great on and off the ice, but, uh, you know, you've got to spend a lot of time with him. What is the great one like? The best way I can tell you about Wayne Gretzky is he's a better person and father than he is a hockey player. What made him special, I tell every young captain or young player this, he would walk in or wherever we were and he would bring the bottom six up to the top six. He would make us all feel as important as Yuri Curry and McSorley, all these guys you're talking about, Paul Coffey. He just treated everybody equally. You know, another example, we're going out for, you know, he'd be going for dinner. Jimmy, come on, you're coming with dinner with me how that would make you feel. And remember, I grew up in Edmonton watching the Oilers win cups. So, 
you know, going to LA was, was special for me with McSorley, Krushiniski, all these guys, Charlie Huddy, all these guys. And, but what made Wayne great was how he treated everybody. And he was just a very good down to earth person. And coming from Boston, uh, I never met the man, and I and I'm assuming that Wayne is the uh, the Gretzky's the way he is from the way he was brought up, and people just loved his father. Rest in peace. Uh, yeah. Did you ever get to meet his dad? What was his dad like, and was he as as nice and wonderful as everybody says he is? Walter was around a lot, and he was a special person. We were laughing about it because where in the NHL could a player have his dad walk into the dressing room before a game <laughs> we used to laugh at it it's like is your dad coming in too <laughs> but walter was and, and we all bowed down to him he was the man and and a story that i tell is we had our halloween party in 1991 and we're down in manhattan beach and we're dancing i'll never forget it my my uh, first wife and i were out dancing with larry robinson and his wife and next thing you know janet and wayne sprinted out of the place we were at and next thing we knew, the word was that uh, Walter had a seizure and his sickness and Wayne and Janet went back. And, you know, prior to his illness and then post illness, he was a different man. And uh, but uh, just a uh, memory and caring and, and, you know, he'd be at events and I was at a couple events with them. And if he, somebody asked for something, he said, give me your name and address. And that person would get the, you know, whatever they wanted in the mail. Like he was amazing. Amazing, amazing human being. And you want, and you know, do you wonder why all the Gretzky's are, you know, the, the mom and dad were, were really, really good people. I want to shift gears here. Um, here's the thing that I can't, that, that I'm looking at. So Jim Thompson is a goal scorer. So when you look at your stats and you watch you play with the old VHS now on YouTube, Andrew, um, of your AHL, I mean, you were lighting it up in the AHL. I mean, you were, you know, you, if you had stayed there, I think you would be, you know, 30, I mean, 40, 50 goal seasons. I mean, you were a goal scorer, a totally different role. Not saying that you weren't uh, uh, a tough guy. I'm just saying you were scoring. But then in the NHL, you had to play a different role. So if you're going up and down, and we had a guest, um, David Ling, right. was the same way. He was lighting it up in the AHL, but when he got called up, he knew what his role was. What was it? How did you adapt to the different roles? Back to what I said earlier, Jim, you do anything to play in the NHL. So when you ride the buses and you're, you're, you know, staying in, you know, um, different hotels in the NHL and, you know, unpacking your own bags. And these are all normal things for normal hockey players, but go to the NHL you know, it's a different lifestyle. It's five star. It's, it's what, what we all signed up to do. So you do anything. And if I had to, you know, fight three times a game, that's what I did as much as I didn't like it, but you did whatever you could do to stay up in the NHL because spend a couple of years in the minors driving around on a bus and, you know, three fights in three nights, uh, you know, in Rochester and Hershey and all these tough buildings, Springfield, You'll, you'll, you know, the adjustment was this, what do you want me to do? Yeah. And so 
the only way I can do research, obviously, is through the, the stats and see what else I can find, but also it's YouTube videos. So I have this question penciled in, Jim, because I definitely wanted to ask the story behind this. I know this kind of going back a little bit, but during your AHL days, I noticed a Bruins and Rangers fan brawl alike where you had a, uh, a brawl in the stands with the fans and it had started out and all of a sudden, I mean, it turned into mayhem and it was like watching that old, oh, the old, the old Bruins. Yeah. It was very similar to that. It seemed like, and so, well, yeah, so I, I think it was Binghamton, right? It was Binghamton, Andrew. And what happened was one of our tough guys, Shane Churla got into a fight with Andy Risto, their tough guy. And at the end of the fight, Shane need him in the, the privates. Right. So in Rochester, it was a bowl. I think it sat around 12,000. But where we went off the ice, there was a stage. So we'd go off behind the net, walk along the stage, and then have to go down a spiral staircase into our dressing room in the basement. There was an elevator too, I'll never forget. So what happened was when Shane was going off, the crowd went crazy because of what he did. And there was a steel pipe. If you watch the video, there's a steel pipe on the stage. And the pipe somehow gets pushed, and or Shirley may have grabbed it and threw it at the crowd. They threw it back. Then mayhem started. And if you watch the video, I'll never forget, there's this young guy in a white T-shirt. And by the time we all got through the gate to get part of this, you know, unfortunate situation, I just remember this kid kicking at Shane's head. Oh. And somehow, some way, I get up on the stage. And I grabbed this kid and I take a punch and I missed him. He ducked. Thank goodness. Because Shane ended up getting charged with assault. I definitely would have been charged with assault if I would have hit that kid. And next thing I know, there's a police officer's hand on my arm and I jumped down. Larry Plowe was, you know, get down. Like, cause you're going crazy. Right. And, right. and again, this is, this is the barbaric times of the eighties that you brought up earlier. And I'm going to tell you this, you know, people have called me out on this because I, I uh, preach now no violence, no fighting. I'm not proud of these moments. You know, I, I did it. I regret it. And, you know, it was the thing I look back at, you know, I got kids now and I'm going, it was just the time, you know, you did, didn't know any different. You, you're this, you know, uh, this team and you did anything for your teammates, you know. No, I, going bar fights, you know, getting in fights in bars, like we're professional hockey players, but with alcohol and being out late and guys, you know, wanting to fight and you're going, what the heck am I doing? But it happens. It happens to everybody. And, you know, um, you look back and you, you're, you're thankful that nothing seriously happened. I'm so thankful I had never hit that kick because it could have changed my life in yeah. many different ways. So, so so was it pretty typical for back in the day for fans to be that barbaric, especially at the minor oh, yeah. league level and stuff? Oh, yeah. Because nowadays you know, it's just kids and stuff at, at these games. Well, I try, I I try well, to, yeah, I try to tell Andrew, it's like, you know, when I used to go to the Boston Garden back in the day, you know, I mean, this is the Big Bad Bruins and Terry O'Reilly and Winsink. It's like I was the only kid in the stands. It, it was it was just guys going to games. It was brutal. Yeah. It's It's changed a lot. But don't kid yourself, guys, in, in places that are rough, you don't want to walk in there with your home jersey. Like, I know a friend, okay, uh, went to Philadelphia, and he had his Leaf jersey on. And he was warned, take your jersey off, take your jersey off. This isn't that long ago. And next thing you know, he's laughing it off, ha, ha, ha. And he got an open hand slap from behind 
that broke his eardrum. Oh. So he was warned, take the Leaf jersey off. So it's still out there. It's not as bad. But, you know, oh, I always say this. When you mix alcohol and passion, <laughs> you know, did you, did you see Did you see the um, Colorado guy that got his flag taken in Vegas? Yes, yes. Did. yes. Okay, say no more. Say yeah. no more, right? What did that turn into? Uh, something that was funny to two guys that were going to take on 18,000 people. Yep. But when you're drinking and you're not thinking, the next thing you know, you're getting, you know, you're getting hurt. Jim, I want to change it up a little bit here and um, ask you this. And, and uh, this may be a flat question. We'll see. But I'm a big Tom McVie fan ever since he was with the Bruins organization. Oh and goodness. so he was your coach in Utica, I believe. I'm hoping he was. I'm a big McPhee fan. I mean, he's just like this hockey legend. I still think he's still a scout for the Bruins. Anyway, um, any good stories with Tom McVie? <laughs> You're so funny, man. <laughs> Tommy McVie, I get traded from the Hartford Whalers to the Utica Devils. Basically, I'm in Binghamton. I get traded from Hartford to New Jersey. I get the call saying, report to Utica. All I remember about Tom McVie was when I was a rookie in Binghamton, he was coaching Maine, Portland, okay? And I they had a guy named Archie Henderson, a tough guy. And I always thought it was Archie yelling from the bench at us, but it was Tom McVie in this voice. He had this voice, Andrew, and he wasn't a big man, but when he talked, it was scary, okay? So I'm thinking the 6'6 tough guy in, in Maine is the guys yelling at us all on the ice, and then it's no, it's Tom McVie, right? So, anyways, make a long story short, I drive to Utica and I got to meet him at uh, an Italian restaurant. And we meet there, and how you doing? And he's a smaller guy, and you know, you can tell he's been through the war. He just is, yeah, he's, <laughs> he, he was a tough dude. So, anyways, I order, I'll never forget it, chicken parm with spaghetti and a big plate came and he ordered a soup so we're talking and he said you know i traded for you because i see something and he traded one of his favorite players for me a guy named chris Chahaki. so he says to me he goes how much do you weigh and i said well i think i'm about 225 hmm. right and as i'm eating my pasta and chicken parm he says i'll tell you what he said you're not going to hit my lineup until you're 215. So I don't know how you're going to get there. He goes, do you want to go back to the NHL? And all of a sudden I put my fork and knife down. True story. And I looked at him and I said, yeah. He goes, okay. He says, you get down to 215. He said, then you can play for the Utica Devils. I was living in uh, a Howard Johnson hotel. I had the trainer bring me a bike over and in these little bathrooms, I would ride the bike and get the hot water going for the steam. I was doing everything to get down to this weight, which I did. But that's Tom McVie. So he changed my course in my pro career. Really? He, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he feared me in a good way into becoming a regular NHLer. Okay. He turned where, you know, and I, I say this com with complete respect to all my other coaches I had. But Tom was the guy that saw something in me and said, you listen to me and you will go play in the NHL. And I listened to Tom McVie and, you know, I'll give you another example. We're playing in Rochester in the playoffs and we get off the bus and then we pregame meals up in the hotel. I didn't even think much of it. 
if I take my, I got my suit on, I take my tie off and go down to the pregame meal. And he looks at me, he goes, where's your tie? I'm thinking we're in the hotel, relax, right? And he goes, you want to eat? Go put your tie back on. And I'm thinking to myself, as much as I was curdling inside, there was a point to everything. We're going to eat like we're professionals, right? So just the lessons that he taught you were invaluable. I'll never forget them this day. I instill them in players that I work with, but he was the most valuable person in my hockey career, him and Larry Plo, who was my first coach, but Tom changed Jim Thompson into being a pro. And I have all the respect in the world for him. Why did you ask me about Tom McBee? Just because when I was looking at stats, like I said, I was, I've always followed uh, McVie and, you know, he's kind of like that minor legend in the Boston organization when he was assistant coach. And then he was a head coach, I think for uh, Providence or whoever their farm team was. And then of course he was with the devil's organizations. And he's always seems to be one of those coaches that, no player says anything negative about it. It's always with respect. And he's always been one of those guys, but you don't hear his name, maybe because he's an older gentleman now, Andrew, but he should be mentioned a lot more, I think. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. So we had a really good team and we had a tough team and a good team. Paul Eisenberg, Kevin Todd, Jeff Medill, some really good offensive players, Claude Vilgrain. So our power play, our defenseman, just had this problem of getting the puck off the ice, you know, shooting from the point. (laughs) So he was snapping one practice and he yelled to the trainer. He goes, go get me a jock, go get me a jock. Right. And we're like, what's he talking about? So he's in his track suit. The guy brings him a jock. He pulls the jock over his track suit. Right. And he lays down in the end zone, no equipment with the jock on. And he says, okay, shoot, you hit me, you hit me, right? And we're all going, not us, but the defensemen are going, no, no. And he made them, eh? He made them shoot the puck. Obviously, there's shots going over the glass and stuff, but this was his way of saying, you're on the power play, shoot the puck and shoot it hard. And if there's guys in your way, get the puck up. It was a lesson that he put his body on the line, but wow, what a lesson. Wow. So, no, no, you have no idea. This this man had courage and character, and that's what made us all better. And, you know, I know a guy like Paul Eisenberg, who had a great NHL career, a long career. Tom McVie was a big staple in his life. Kevin Todd, all these guys that, you know, and I can't even mention all the guys he's coached, but I can tell you, for me, he was a turning point in my career when I needed a guy just to kick me in the ass and say, okay, enough. Because here I am in the minors, and you mentioned it, Jim, Jim about me scoring. Ah, but guess what? Take 15 pounds off me, right? And all of a sudden, I scored, I think, 21 goals that year for him in Utica. Wow. And, you know, he believed, he saw something. So just a fantastic – I'm glad you asked the question because I do a lot yeah. of podcasts and never nobody's ever asked me about Tom McVie. Yeah, and, and I, I'm pretty sure uh, he still has the ear of, uh, you know, Neely and, and Sweeney and those guys up in Boston just because how can you, how can you not? But, Jim, let's uh, talk a little bit about what you've been doing sort of post-career. Um, I mean, so you, you know, you battled alcohol, you battled, um, you know, opioids and, and some drug addiction. The NHL, uh, uh, you know, kind of gave you a little bit of education to help you through that. But what does it take to finally just say, and, you know, I mean, not to get too personal, 
you know, you don't, but I, I've had family members that have had the same addictions and it seems to be, they don't get better until the one day they say, today's the day that I'm going to make that change, not try, not go to this meeting or that meeting, but this is the day that it's going to change. And I'm sure that that was your day for you. Uh, I want to talk about that, but everything that you've been doing to help people, I mean, it's, it's, thousands of kids that are now adults and players and non-players, but tell us a little about what did, was it a day that you said, this is it enough today. It changes. I will tell you this and, and all the nights that I stayed up smoking crack cocaine or doing opiates, Oxycontin and drinking and living like a monster, you know, okay. I'm I, you know, the depression would kick in and then two nights later you're doing it again. And it's a great question, Jim, because one day, I was flying back from my hometown of Edmonton. I was doing some work out there and I'd been on a two-day party. Ironically, it was my youngest's birthday on November 17th. And I got on the plane. I'll never forget. It. I was just really calm, you know, and feeling rough, obviously being up 48 hours. And I got on the plane and I just sat there and just this calmness. There's just, you know, different. And I can't explain it except I surrendered to the demons and surrendered to the addiction. And, um, you know, I went home back to my house. At this point I was divorced. So I was living on my own and I poured everything out. I threw everything away and it's, I'm in my 13th year of sobriety. And, you know, I tell people, all the people I help now, the interventions I do, and, you know, I can take you to rehab five times, but if you're not going to surrender to the addiction, it doesn't matter. And everybody has it in them to there's comes a day that you surrender. And if you're not ready to surrender, then um, you will keep going. I'll give you a quick story. I, I took a guy in 45 days in rehab and he planned it. He come out and he had his stash put away. So he goes from rehab back to his house to using. He had no plans on quitting. So because of the people that he was working for, he had to put on this, you know, 45 day holiday and he's right back at it. He's not ready. And what are we going to do? What, you're not going to do anything because you're not going to take an addict and get them to quit through fear or anything. They got to want to do it themselves. And, you know, rehab centers are great education. Like I learned more in rehab because I was the youngest of 10 kids. I grew up in a trailer park. Both of my parents were alcoholics. Right. So I grew up, I started drinking and smoking dope when I was 12 and was fortunate enough to get out of it and to be a pro hockey player. But it's, it's like, you're not going to change somebody who doesn't want to change. So um, what I do now is exactly what you said. I mentor, I do tons of speaking, um, you know, on my, on my Instagram, I put out positive messages every day to the people I work with. Number one, it comes from me, how I feel about positivity and, you know, life is much better being sober every morning and that sort of thing. But uh, especially through COVID here in Canada, it's been really trying with suicide rates being up, overdoses being up, the amount of opiates that are, you know, being used. And it's, it's really an unfortunate mess right now, but um, yeah, so it's, it's very rewarding. I always say this guys, the NHL was not my calling. My calling was uh, the NHL gives me a little more credibility in my 13 years of sobriety to help people. 
and that's the way I live my life every day. And uh, I can't be more blessed and honored that if I can save somebody's life, then I've done my job. Well, and I and I know you have, and and I'm just going to brag on you a little bit, only just to, because you deserve it. You may not want to take it, but you know, I mean, we've had guests on here. I think you're our 14th or 15th, you know, former NHLer. And uh, everybody, we're finding out, everybody knows everybody in this community, right? So we're kind of on the outer fringes. And, uh, you know, when Andrew's like, hey, we got Jim Thompson we're going to have on the podcast, you know, ask around some of the other guys. We still got, you know, the text number. And, and you know, they kind of bring a story uh, that you're kind of like uh, Bobby Orr in the way that Bobby Orr does a lot of work that isn't covered in media, doesn't want it covered in media. And you do an awful lot of work uh, that people don't know about just with individuals with addiction. And, and um, you know, somebody had told me that. And, uh, you know, that, that's the type of guy you are. I mean, all the respect to you, truly. Well, I, I say this, Jim, that, you know, at this point in my life, you know, I've accomplished a lot, good and bad. My journey has been up and down. And I, I feel in my heart that helping somebody is better than taking something. And, you know, I was that user, abuser, drug addict, you know, stealing, lying, sniveling, all these things that drug addicts do. I lived it. Then you straighten your life out and realize the importance of, you know, helping somebody. It's like helping somebody to me is the biggest gift that when you can actually and it can be anything. It can be, you know, opening a door for somebody. It can be anything, you know. It can be anything that somebody says, thank you very much, and thanks for your help. Thanks for your compliment. You know, you know, in today's society, like, I make a point of I'm in a grocery store, and, you know, if somebody catches my eyes, I'll say, how are you? Just that, right? Like, they may not say it back, but it's how it made me feel. It's how I'm sure they felt. Well, that's nice. Like, just little things. And then you go to the big things of, you know, saving lives is, is, is the ultimate. And, you know, like when I go talk at rehab centers, there'll be 30 users in front of me and addicts. And I tell them, I'm planting a seed today. If one of you take that seed and let it grow, I've done my job. I've done right. my job. And if you can become sober and I've had a little bit to do with it, that's, that's the most beautiful thing that can happen because it's, it's a, it's a, it's a real sadness you know what people are living with and trying to beat and they can't and it's it's awful i lived it i was very fortunate you own a team you own uh, yeah. aurora tigers uh, a yeah. junior team and uh you you've successfully run many prospect camps so you work with a lot of these young kids um in hockey and uh one of the th i i read um late last week a statement that you made um, that you've taken those sort of ethics, the professionalism to teach these young kids on the team I'm talking about that you own, that you're looking for talent, but you're looking for the right characters, which struck me as important um, because, you know, these kids are young kids, Andrew, and they don't know how to act sometimes, I'm assuming. And as soon as if, if somebody does something too wrong that you don't want on a team. I mean, you're just going to trade them, but you explain to them why they're being traded away. Correct. I mean, to me, that's, yeah. 
that's the ultimate. Um, I mean, a lot of owners probably wouldn't. Hey, we can deal with this guy if he's got this as long as he's doing this for us. But that's not the case with you. No. And, you know, I, I, I'll use an example. I had a veteran player that vaped. Well, we know how bad vaping is. And I said to him, I said, you can't, you got to stop. Number one, for your own health. Well, my parents are fine with it. I said, that's fine. But I'm not fine with it because I don't want you vaping around 22 other hockey players. that parents are depending on my wife and I to give them proper culture and proper guidelines and proper education. So if I'm allowing you to vape, and this goes for chew two, zero chew, zero vaping, smoking, all this stuff, then... I'm, my culture's not right. So these little things, I ended up trading them because he wasn't prepared to quit. That was more important than him being on the Aurora Tigers and the OJHL. So when you say that, you know, we won our last season before COVID, we won seven hockey games. But I say this with respect to that team. They may have been the most enjoyable team because we knew we weren't good enough. But the character and the trying with all these young kids was unbelievable. Every game we'd go out, we would give that team a push and a fight. And it could be 2-2 after the second and we'd lose 6-2 just because we weren't good enough. But the culture and the behavior was unbelievable. And I sat there and I went, you know, where we've had very good hockey teams, right? Not that they were bad, but, you know, winning 34 games or seven. And then you compare the, the, the end of the season like the experience and the culture wasn't far I mean nobody likes to lose but at the end of the day I've learned one thing in my life and career there's only one winner there's only one winner I found that going to Stanley Cup final and getting beat by Montreal there's one winner and everybody else is a loser so you know to me at this point we want to win don't get me wrong but it's more important that we're showing the culture of winning in society and off the ice because you know, sadly, a lot of these players, most of them won't make the NHL or pro hockey. And what we plant with them, we want them to take for life. Absolutely. That's amazing. You got one question, Andrew? So I've got one more before we do our lightning round questions. And oh, this, yeah. this obviously kind of will take the focus off what we've been talking about. But as the Seattle Kraken expansion drafts comes up, I noticed that you were actually claimed in Three expansion drafts, really, three years in a row, really claimed by the North Stars, Senators, and then the Anaheim Ducks. So, obviously, probably three different stories. I mean, what was the either the craziest, or was there a? Did they all call you? How did that go? Three years in a row, you're getting claimed. Well, it's funny you brought that up because I it's actually a record. I didn't know this until people started using it as a trivia. Who's the only player to go in three consecutive expansion drafts or three expansion drafts? I'm the only one. Wow. So, <laughs> um, I'll take you through it quickly. So I signed with the Kings, and that summer – Minnesota and San Jose split. So they both got to pick unprotected players from each NHL team. I get picked up by Minnesota. So that was in, uh, I believe, May. Then the June draft, the entry draft, right? I'll never forget, I'm sitting in my mom's trailer and that same rotary phone. <laughs> I'm, having my, and I'm having my coffee watching the draft. And I was upset because I, I went to LA with Gretzky. Like, I'm, I'm you know... <laughs> And that was the year I, I only got called up at the end. I played most of the year in New Haven, but I got called up at the end and then played the playoffs with them. So I'm thinking, finally, I'm, you know, this is what I signed up for. So I, 
I uh, get picked up by Minnesota in the expansion draft. So watching the entry draft, Gary Bettman comes up. He says, we have a trade. He said, the Minnesota North Stars have traded. Now, they had a defenseman, Jim Johnson. Okay. So we're talking, you know, TVs back then. So the Minnesota North Stars have traded to the LA Kings defenseman, Charlie Huddy, because he was in the expansion trap, Jim Johnson, um, Randy Gillen, and a second-round pick, which was Alex Zitnick for Todd Alec. And I'm like, damn, right? Why couldn't it have been Jim Thompson? <laughs> Next thing you know, that rotary phone, ring, ring, go pick it up. And it's John Wolf, our public relation guy, goes, welcome back. So it was Jim Thompson. So I was obviously. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I go back, play that whole year in L.A. And at the end of the year, Nick Beverly and Rogie Vashon said, we're going to protect you. So don't worry about the expansion draft because Tampa Bay and Ottawa came in. So I went fishing with my buddy and my brother. And back then there was no social media. So I said to my brother, I said, I want to go into town. And get a newspaper to see what the protected list is. Thinking I was protected. So I go into, we go into this little town. There's the newspaper, the Edmonton Journal. Under LA, unprotected players, Jim Thompson. I'm like, oh, no. So I really made my brother mad, right? So I said, we got to go back. We got, I got to go see this, right? So we packed up, drove back, got to his house, got into the house. I turned on the expansion draft. Three picks later, the Ottawa Senators picked Jim Thompson. I was devastated. You know, again, I'm like, come on. Like, really? So I go to Ottawa. We, we're at the Christmas break. We're playing in Toronto for uh, uh, at Christmas break. There's a freeze at midnight. So you couldn't trade anybody over the Christmas break. So we, our last game was against Toronto. And after the game, I come back to the hotel and all the media is there. And they said, how do you feel? I had no idea what they're talking about. They said, you got traded back to the Kings tonight. Again, I, you know, I'm very, very happy. So go back to the Kings. That's the year we went to the Stanley Cup final. Sure enough, the call came the next year. Florida and Anaheim come in, and Anaheim Ducks claim me in the expansion draft. And that one, that one I was actually happy about and excited because, you know, the fact that the Ducks, like it was just this whole exciting thing, and I was still going to be in California, and I was really excited to go to this new team. And unfortunately, that's where I got hurt my first uh, first year and had to retire with the shoulder injury. But good question, Andrew. And it was three really memorable summers. I can tell you that. I bet, wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So um, Jim, we're going to finish up with lightning round questions. So uh, we're going to ask a fast question. You can answer it with a word or two, or if you have a story, I mean, we're just going to kind of leave it up to you, but we're just going to ask very quick questions yep. and, and here we go. I'll start Andrew. Okay. So, Considering all the leagues that you played in, what was your favorite arena to play in? Chicago Stadium. Okay, why? The organ, the national anthem, all the people cheering was like you. It was. It's an experience that only guys who were on the ice at that bench to understand it. And it, you know, it was just amazing. Um, yeah, that it was something I'll never forget. Which arena had the worst ice conditions? Had the worst ice conditions. Hmm. I'm going to say our conditions in Anaheim were bad back in the day. 
right? Uh, LA's was not good. You know, I always tell this story quickly. Yeri Curry went from 50, 50, 50, 60 goals. He comes to LA and he used a real thin stick. And people wondered why he didn't score as much in LA. They're still with Gretzky. But you look at how many times that puck was on a stick and bounced over it or when he went to shoot the one-timer because of the bad ice. And it affected his goal scoring big time. So I would say, and I know, uh, I know Dallas was really bad too, but those, those ones were bad. Yeah. Most of the uh, players, when we ask this lightning round, they, they do say that, uh, you know, the old forum ice was pretty bad. And uh, what was the other one? Oh, the the odd, the old odd in Buffalo. Oh yeah. 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 Somehow they, they hate playing in the odd, but anyway, all right, next one, which player had the ability to get under your skin the most? Rob Ray. Not considering fighting, but what was the toughest player that you had to always play against on the ice? Theo Fleury. The toughest goalie to play against? Ron Hextall. The funniest or most embarrassing moment to you happen on the ice? Hmm. Well, that's a good one. I probably... um, Let me just think. I got to think about this uh, funniest or most embarrassing moment. Well, embarrassing. Listen, I was I cost us a hockey game, an important hockey game, because I was selfish and took a stupid penalty. So talk about embarrassing going back in the dressing with your teammates. It was uncalled for. It was stupid. And I still bothers me till this day. Wasn't funny, though. (laughs) So what happens when you do say you do that? You make a really bad mistake. I mean, do you apologize to your team? Do you just keep your mouth shut? Does a captain say something to you? Does a coach ream your ass? There's nothing to say. Everybody in your organization knows that you you, you know, completely were selfish. I call it selfish. And, you know, um, you just you just get you just go about your business and get out of there. And you know, the next day's a new day and you try never to do it again. And I only did it once in my career. Favorite line mate. Favorite line mate. I'm going to say playing with Jay Miller in LA. Jay was a former Boston Bruin, very tough. And he was funny. And, you know, just his accent, you know, Hey, (laughs) You know, you don't, you know, just the Boston accent. I was wide open, like, right? <laughs> okay, Jay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he was funny, too, because at the end of the game, if it was a tight game, we knew we weren't getting back on the ice. He'd untie his skates and, he'd, you know, I'm going to rest <laughs> my feet. Yeah. Jay was Jay was uh, a really, really funny guy and great guy, but he was tough. I never had to fight him, thank goodness, because he could, he could really hurt um, me. I was about to say, so out of – all the leagues, including OHL and everything, who punched the hardest? Well, there was a many of them, Andrew. Tony Twist, Joey Kosher, Dave Brown. You know, these guys could, you know, they could do a lot of damage by hitting you. And um, there was a lot of hard, hard. But, you know, they say Tony Twist, Kosher, you know, Dave Brown hit with that left. It was, it was pretty bad. So those three I'd put at the top. Cool. And last, uh, your favorite memory in your whole hockey career. I know that's a tough one to answer. Well, I'm going to have to say it was my first game. Like, you know, they could say it's your first goal. My first game is a story. It's a book in itself covering Lemieux and all that. And the whole 
I'll never forget walking into the Capitol Center and seeing my jersey there. And so it'd be my very first NHL game. Awesome. Well, Jim, we can't thank you enough. This has been uh, uh, a great for us, especially for me, just because, like I said, you were a player that I, I remember watching. And uh, we want to thank you so much for coming on our, our little podcast. Yeah, thanks again, Jim. I want to thank you. And I will say this. I've done a lot of podcasts, guys. You've done your homework and the questions were above average because a lot of these, you know, yes, you get the same questions. It's like, you know, I'm playing the movie over, but, you know, the Tom McVie one sticks out. Like these were really, for me, very um, entertaining because of the questions that you asked. So thank you for investigating me and asking some brilliant questions. I enjoyed that. Awesome. Our pleasure. So I'm just going to pause this. So hang on one minute, Jim, and we'll get right back. Okay, Andrew. Yeah. So Jim Thompson, great guests, great stories. I mean, we could sit here and talk about each individual one that you know we enjoyed hearing. But yeah, that first NHL shift, man, that's and him holding the expansion draft record. You know, when I was writing down that, you know, those stats for him, you know, uh-huh. never knew that he actually held the record of being drafted three times in a row. Yeah, I I didn't know that. I didn't know that. We didn't get, I mean, there's so many questions we could ask him because he's done so much. Uh, His first goal, I think it was Eddie Belfour in Chicago, and uh, he got knocked out when he scored the goal. He didn't even know he scored the goal. Yeah, see, we got it. That's why we got to the back on. I mean, but we were were way over time. He was gracious enough to stay on with us here. You know what I mean? Um, so we'll definitely have to have him back. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, episodes here. I had a great time talking to him. Like I said, he lived the dream out there in L.A. for a few years. It was nuts out there in the early 90s yep. with, and all the celebrities and them going to the finals. And uh, I wanted to ask him a little bit more about the intensity of the finals and the playoffs and things like that. But um, we'll ha- definitely have him on again. But like I said, he's doing a lot of great work. Um, if you've not seen him, our listeners, you know, look, he's still jacked. Uh, you know, he's, he's impressive. And he still has the long, the long hair that he, he was kind of famous for that everybody had in the late 80s. Yeah. He had that flow going in the back. But anyway, we're running a little uh, late here on the podcast. So let's end this. Episode 30. Episode 31. Check it out everywhere you can get podcasts. And uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, we do have guests lined up. But next week, it's still an uncertain confirmed on one player that I'm still trying to lock down. But we have other guests lined up for the next three weeks after that. So we will uh, be happy to uh, publish those uh, once a week. Yep, absolutely. So we appreciate you guys tuning us in this week. And everybody have a wonderful week. Bye-bye.